This is an ABC podcast. Today's Future Tense is all about management. And why the managerial approach adopted from the corporate world still holds sway in the public sector, its problems and benefits, and what's the alternative. So that's our focus, with the caveat that, just in case my bosses are listening, we're not necessarily talking about the ABC. Heaven forbid. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Now, we first need to go back in time, quite a few decades in fact, to an organisational theory that you've probably never heard of, but you're almost certain to recognise, particularly if you work in a government department or agency. And to kick us off, Beth Novak, Director of the Governance Lab at New York University. Beginning in the 1980s, especially with Reagan and with Thatcher and the predominance of conservative governance, we evolved this concept of new public management. So it was really pioneered or coined the term by an academic in the UK named Christopher Hood. And it really sort of said, as the name implies, that we should treat government in a way the way we think about business. We should treat citizens as customers and we should put customer service at the center of what we do in government. That is to say, we should be more efficient, we should save more money, we should set performance targets, and we should have professionalized management and more centralized control that allows us to realize that vision. So it sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Efficiency and cost savings, those are great things. Who doesn't like that? But I think we've come to realize with 2020 hindsight that, first of all, it hasn't worked very well, number one. Of course, there are many ways in which, yes, we have saved money and done things more efficiently and introduced new technologies. But at its core, really, I think what the concept of new public management does and its sister concept that came about later in the 1990s called public value theory, which again, very similarly sort of said, we should think about government the way we think about companies. Companies create shareholder value and government should create public value for citizens. And we should think about it in the same way. But I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, this really hasn't worked. And in many ways, these theories have done a lot of harm. So managerialism is about seeing everything through an efficiency matrix that mimics the profit and loss focus of the private sector. It also increasingly involves the separation of management from organisation-specific knowledge and expertise. Peter Fleming, a specialist in strategy, management and organisation behaviour, at UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney. Managerialism obviously comes from the word manager, and it's the assumption that a cadre, only a cadre of highly trained managers, can really effectively run and administer an organisation. So as opposed to like co-governance, participation from workers, cooperatives and so forth, this is really about an expert body of managers who assume to know exactly what needs to be done to run an organisation. And it's basically around that idea of managers knowing best. So it has a number of other components that I think is quite important when we're thinking about the notion or the idea of managerialism. First of all, it considers management as a generic skill. So that means as long as a manager is trained appropriately, they can be 
dropped pretty much into any workplace setting, be it a hospital, be it a university, without actually having necessarily had to go up the ranks in those institutions. So you may get a professional manager, a career manager in a hospital who knows very little about you know, the medical side of things, hasn't been trained as a doctor or a surgeon, and similarly in the universities as well. There was also the assumption that these managers know the best strategy for running an organisation, that they have better information, if you like, and they've been trained how to manage and to administer an organisation. So there's a kind of a degree of technocratic solutionism associated with managerialism. And of course, not much dialogue among staff. You know, once again, it's not about a cooperative or co-participation in running an institution. These are experts who are scientifically trained and they know the best course of action for an organisation. Another important element, says Professor Fleming, is that focus on numbers and score setting. So there's a strong emphasis on metrics, data, and obviously with digitalisation and metrification, big data, for example, over the recent years with the advent of computer technology, that's become quite important for this as well. And fourthly, efficiency is the mantra right? Efficiency. It's all about efficient systems, efficient structures, efficient work processes. But I think the fifth and the most important element of managerialism is that it's a power relationship. There are employers and there are employees. Managers are agents of employers and what they say goes. So there is an authority relationship usually built up around a hierarchy, a chain of command. But that employer-employee dynamic is very important for understanding managerialism as well. Is there a connection between the rise of managerialism and the growth of business skills and the, if you like, the professionalisation of management? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So business schools are, are very important in the equation, I guess. And that stems mainly from the American model, where The American business school model with the MBA system, the executive MBA system is kind of seen to be a feeder for professional management or those who want to pursue a professional management career. And business school has been very important for certification, for certifying the professionalism needed to be a manager or middle or senior manager in a a major organisation. So business schools are a very important part of the equation. The separation, if you like, of of management from the rest of the staff in an organisation, does that lead to a form of elitism? And if so, how does it manifest itself? Yeah, there is a degree, I guess, uh, it's a power differential and it's an old story that goes back to the old factories, right? And bureaucracy, administrative bureaucracies, where you have that division between the thinking, the managers with the data and those who do the actual tasks and have to follow the orders and the rules of the managers because they know best. So there is a division there that definitely develops. And it becomes interesting when we apply it outside of the factory to organisations that are knowledge workers, for example, how that kind of develops an interesting tension, especially if the staff are the experts in some ways, you know, that the staff have more knowledge than the managers, and then that creates a kind of an interesting power relationship for sure. Elitism, I'm not too sure if I would necessarily use such a word with such strong connotations, but there is a definitely a power relationship and it manifests itself through hierarchies. 
And if you've ever wondered why some senior executives of public organisations are paid huge salaries and corporate-style bonuses, well, therein might lie the answer. Jean-Etienne Julier is a professor of management at the EMLV Business School in Paris, and he believes managerialism in both the corporate and public sectors has created a kind of club atmosphere focused on self-interest. In the 1960s, the typical ratio between the CEO of an organisation and the median pay in the same organisation was about 20 to 1. In the 1960s, the ratio was about 20 to 1. Nowadays, it's about 400 to 1. And there are organisations in which the CEO makes about a thousand times in one year what the median worker in the same organization makes. Now, if there is an illustration of management looking after itself and not after the interests of those people they are supposed to serve, surely it must be this one. So, I mean, that sort of inequality then brings with it quite a stark division, doesn't it, between a managerial class and everybody else within an organization? That's right. That's right. And in fact, in all the organizations I've worked or I've been involved, people do speak of them against us. And that's true for both groups. Managers speak of the other employees as them and us as the management team and the other way around. Non-managerial employees, they do speak of them as against us. Professor Julier argues that at the very heart of managerialism is a misunderstanding or confusion about both power and authority. The dual nature of authority has been forgotten. And the result is that we have constant equivocation. So in one sense, authority is seen as a form of power. This is the meaning implied when we say, for example, the prime minister has authority on federal matters. The same meaning is also implied when we refer to a policeman, a headmaster or a CEO as an authority figure. Now, this is the first meaning of authority, which is quite common. It's an aspect or it's a form of power. However, there is another and equally common meaning of the term. And in that meaning, authority means something else altogether. That second usage is closely linked to the idea of rights, duties, and authorization. To have authority in this second sense is to have been authorized to act by people who recognize that you know something that they do not. For example, a GP has authority normally over his or her patients. As long as these patients are satisfied with what the doctor says or prescribes, they will follow his or her instructions. A crucial point, authority as authorization is a source of power, but the reverse is not true. Power is never a source of authority. Managers believe, because they have power, they believe that they also have authority. Now, there is no debate that in an organization, managers have power. They have been appointed to make decisions. But that does not imply that they are knowledgeable on just about everything that comes their way. And confusing authority with power has led to the confusion of being authoritative and being authoritarian. Being authoritative means that you are knowledgeable about what you are saying, you are able to explain, you are able to justify your view, 
you are able, in the phrase of uh, Carl Friedrich, you are able to reasonably elaborate your views. To be authoritarian is quite the reverse. You decide and you do not accept debate or critical evaluation. You believe that you have the final say on just about everything. You know, I know the words are close, authoritative and authoritarian, but they are starkly different. And in fact, authoritarian decision makers, they have no authority. They pretend to have, but they don't. And with managerialism then, have we seen a trend toward this idea of authoritarianism in the workforce, in organisations, of power, as you say, without necessarily having expertise? That's right. That's right. And managerialists believe they can decide on anything. They don't listen to experts. They believe that experts, technicians, and all these employees who are not managers are only there to execute the decisions that managerialists take. And as a result, the quality of decisions has declined. Why is there this confusion about how organisations should be managed? I think it's a result, in part at least, of this idea that you cannot be a manager if you have not been equipped with some knowledge and tools that you have, for instance, acquired at university. I mean, the whole idea of management education rests on the idea that there is some body of knowledge without which you cannot be a good manager. Now, I am not saying, Anthony, that there is no principles that are applicable to all management situations. I'm not saying this. I mean, to take a very simple example, obviously, managers have to listen, to consult before they make decisions. They have to watch what happens after these decisions, and they have to adjust accordingly. But this is precisely my point. Managerialists do not consult. They pretend they do, but they don't. They believe that only they have authority. Because they confuse power with authority, since they have power, they believe that only they have authority. But this is degrading and, in fact, demeaning for everybody else. I mean, take a hospital, for instance. I mean, hospitals used to be run by people coming from the medical professions. And that's not so much the case anymore. Hospitals are now run by professional managers who have very little, if any, medical experience or expertise. They make decisions on behalf of everybody else working in the hospital without realizing the consequences of those decisions because they believe that they have authority on those matters. And since hospitals have beds, for instance, you hear people managing hospitals speaking about their organization as if it was a hotel. And they would talk to you, for instance, about the bed occupancy rate. I mean, as if, as if that statistic mattered in a hospital. A hospital is not a hotel. Another example of where managerialism has crept in is higher education. Universities now, and I'm well-placed to know this, are run like private organizations. They are managed by people who have, in fact, little experience and little interest in academic matters. What matters to them really is that the, the reputation of the university, the position on some international ranking, how many papers have been published. But despite all what they say, academic life, academic experience, teaching, learning, it's not really their concern. I mean, in universities, and I know it sounds paradoxical, but that's true. 
in universities, academics, real academics, researchers, teachers, they have been sidelined. They are not those who make decisions nowadays. Professor Jean Etain Julier. And now let's look at another, perhaps less obvious area in which managerialism is also having a significant influence. I would define managerialism in the criminal justice setting to be sort of focused on the three E's from the sort of the business world, if you will, efficiency, economy and effectiveness. But what I think we do in criminal justice is we have such a desire to be efficient and economic. I often fear that we forget about the effectiveness of the system. So ultimately, managerialism in a criminal justice context is about prioritising economic resource saving over doing justice. My name's Dr Ed Johnston. I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Procedure and Justice at the University of Northampton in the UK. And Dr Johnston says, in the British context at least, the managerial approach has not only skewed the focus of the courts, it's damaged the very foundation of British justice. Since the mid-1990s or the early 1990s, we've always had the idea that the adversarial system has excesses that need to be cut. And we had piecemeal kind of changes to try to speed up the system. There was changes to the right to silence provisions. There was changes to disclosure law in terms of what the defence had to offer the other side. And then in 2001, I think there's a real shift here. There was the review of the criminal courts that was undertaken by Lord Justice Old. And this basically, in my opinion, provided the sort of bedrock foundation for this managerialized push. There is a clear, explicit desire to be quick. We shift from our core adversarial sort of standpoint and we say, the overriding objective of the criminal justice system is to deal with cases justly. And they change the roles and responsibilities for the defence lawyer in terms of, you know, what you have to do if, if your opponent makes a mistake, if the prosecution make a mistake, you've got to flag that at an early possible stage. Whereas previously you could say, well, this is incorrect. There's no case to answer here. The defendant's acquitted. That's adversarial justice. You get one shot. Penalty shootout theory. You get one go at it. You know, you don't get to redo penalty shootouts if you miss. Being English, that's relatively unfortunate. But we had a real shift here and efficiency was the major driver. And I think it's been a constant since 2001. The tone and tenor of the courts have changed and it's just getting harder to be an adversarial lawyer in an adversarial system that only exists in name. And you argue, don't you, that this change has actually put a bias towards the prosecution as opposed to the defence? Courts are conviction-minded, and I think the defence have a number of onerous obligations placed upon them, especially in terms of disclosure, lack of legal aid funding, and pressures interwoven with guilty plea incentives. It's very hard, I think, for defence lawyers to be zealous advocates because the system is no longer designed for them to be zealous advocates. They are designed to be a cog in the machine, if you will, part of the conveyor belt process. And we have conveyor belt process justice in England and Wales. Do you see a move toward managerial processes in law enforcement more generally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
again, I think what we've seen over the last 20 years is, say, 25, 30 years ago, the court, despite you know its criticisms, of which there were many, the court was still the centerpiece to the adversarial system. That was still the forum in which justice is delivered. I actually think now, over the last sort of 20 years or so, 25 years, the police station has simply grown in importance and the majority of cases are designed to finish in the police station by whatever mechanism of disposal. But the police station has simply grown in importance. And I think, you know, that's part of that sort of administration of justice, that more managerialized approach that you're keeping cases out of court. As institutions and organizations get more complex, as societies get bigger and more complex and and populations grow, we get these institutions that only get more and more hierarchical and more bureaucratic because of this vision that we need some kind of top-down centralized control. So you get layers upon layers of managers. But at the same time, we've also seen the evolution of very new kinds of more open source communities and open sourced organizations. So if you think about something like the SafeCast project, which started after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant disaster in Japan, when people felt they really couldn't count on the government to provide accurate and reliable and trustworthy data about radiation, a community formed bottom-up very spontaneously, a network of thousands of volunteers who started measuring radiation and later air quality, not just in Japan, but now across every country in the world. And they've collected 150 million different data points about air quality and radiation. And they continue to measure environmental conditions around the world in a very different kind of open source, bottom-up form of organization. We've seen, especially with new technology, very new kinds of structures for organizations that are much more decentralized, much more bottom-up, and much more, I think, engaged with the people whom they serve than the way we've been thinking about companies or governments in the 80s and 90s. And is it right to see those examples as as part of a pushback? I mean, when you look around the world at the moment, neoliberal economic policies are certainly being reviewed or assessed for their success over past decades. Are we likely to see that or are we seeing that with this idea of new public management and managerialism? Yes, I think that similarly, just as, you know, there's been a pushback against neoliberal ideas, both for their lack of success, but also because they've completely eschewed what we might call and some have referred to as a politics of care. In other words, something that really puts the care for other human beings, our human dignity and human rights at the center rather than simply efficiency. I think similarly, there's kind of a pushback in which we're looking at new kinds of structures, new forms of organizations, and fundamentally also new ways of working. Because this isn't just about new organizational forms, it's about new skills that we practice in the workplace. You know, and what I mean by this is we weren't taught when we went to university or we went to graduate school how we do something like engage with other communities, have a conversation with other people. We're not taught how to foster or moderate a conversation or how if I'm in a government agency and I want to go talk to citizens about how to design a better service for them, how people want to get a benefit or get their driver's license, we're not trained in how to do that. 
So these new organizational forms also imply the need for new kinds of skills. And we're seeing a lot of demand for that, I think, in the private sector as well as in the public sector. People who know how to work on solving complex problems, people who know how to actually engage in better communication and conversation, people who know how to moderate a dialogue those are all skills that are highly prized and in demand, according to CEOs and, and leaders in the private sector. And we're seeing the same kind of demand in the public sector is to upskill and train people in the ability to work in these different ways that are really the reaction to the managerial theories of yesterday. I think there are different ways in which it could move forward. Look, we're never going to get rid of quantification, digitalization, big data, but I think how it's used can be changed. That needs to be more co-participatory. In other words, rather than it kind of reflecting a top-down structure and corporate structure and in these institutions, we know highly trained staff, that there should be a little bit more cooperation and a little bit more participation in the way in which those types of data and those types of metrics get used. You know, what are the targets, for example, that we're all gunning for? Are those the appropriate targets for our institution? Rather than it coming down on high, these are the targets, these are the outputs, these are the things you need to do, or your position's in jeopardy. Is managerialism, is it a problem in certain sectors more so than in others? I think it's swept right across the board, in fact. You know, in the corporate sector, managerial bloat has been a problem for many, many years. They, the whole downsizing craze during the 90s really didn't do much in terms of the number of managers, middle managers in the corporate private sector. But it's really boomed in the public sector due to ideology called new public management that you need to have lots of managers to control these large complex organisations. And it's kind of gotten away, I think, to a certain extent. And in many public sector organisations, you've seen a rapid increase, a rapid increase in highly trained, highly qualified and highly paid, very well remunerated senior managers. So you're getting a lot of senior managers in public sector organisations across the board. And whether that makes them better at what they do, well, it depends on who you ask. You know, as I said before, efficiency is always in the eye of the beholder. It's difficult to see exactly where things are going, but perhaps there will be some reckoning. Perhaps wage inequality will push organisations at breaking point and that people will take stock on what is happening and, and perhaps will realize that they need to get rid of these habits of having people deciding over matters over which they are not really knowledgeable. Now, I was hoping, I must say I was hoping myself, that the COVID crisis would be a good opportunity to reevaluate what we've been doing. I was hoping that with people working from home, away from the workplace and, and, and away from their managers, they would receive more autonomy and more authority to make decisions by themselves based on their knowledge and their expertise. And initially, managerialists resisted the spread of telework. In fact, they were forced to accept it by the lockdown measures that were imposed on them. But in fact, I realized, I mean, my experience and the experience of people I can talk to, fortunately, the reverse has happened. By this, I mean that managerialists have seized on telework as a pretext 
for asking even more information, for controlling even more what people do. I mean, I hear stories of people being harassed by their managers through emails, uh, text messages, that they have to reply within minutes. And if they don't, they are threatened with retribution. So unfortunately, it looks like that the rise of telework, which is, I think, there to stay, did not challenge managerialism, but in fact accelerated it. How the obsession with hierarchy and a separate managerial class is holding us back. Jean-Étienne Julier from the EMLV Business School in Paris. We also heard today from Peter Fleming, a specialist in strategy, management and organisation behaviour at the University of Technology, Sydney, Beth Novek, the director of the Governance Lab at New York University, and Ed Johnston, a senior lecturer in law at the University of Northampton. My thanks, as always, to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers, and thanks for joining me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.